You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. Have you ever thought about hosting a young clergy meetup, but you have no idea where to start? Check out the new meetup guide on our website at thisnazlife.com files. Today's role model episode is with Reverend John Middendorf, pastor of Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bowler-Jack, and I'm here with my guest, Reverend John Middendorf. John is the lead pastor of Oklahoma City First Church of the Nazarene in Oklahoma City. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? I am third generation Nazarene. I'm, in fact, I'm third generation Nazarene pastor. Jess A. Middendorf and then Jess C. Middendorf preceded me. And so I've not known a day when I've not been Nazarene, born into it. How did you end up with a call to be a pastor? Tell me about your calling. Yeah, that's more complicated. I got a religion degree at uh, Southern Nazarene University. Um... But as I finished that religion degree, I didn't have a very clear sense of calling. Mm. And in fact, I had in mind that I would um, just recruit for the college for a while because I just didn't have, I just didn't have that heartbeat just yet and wasn't sure that I would. And I I got a job opportunity uh, with the college to do some some traveling and some recruiting and, and really thought that that's what I would end up doing. And then got an offer to to uh, be a part-time youth pastor at Oklahoma City First Church. And because I knew some of the folks involved and because the pastor, uh, Stan Toller, was a was a friend of my dad's. I didn't know him, but because uh, he was a friend of my dad's, uh, I went ahead and and took that position, and and really worked as a part-time youth pastor for the better part of two years without anything that would have resembled a, a call to ministry. Mm. But with a with a pretty significant crisis of faith. About two years in, um, I I kind of I kind of came to a crossroads, and I remember going into the pastor's office, and by that time the pastor was no longer Stan Toller; it was Terry Toller. And I remember talking to Terry about uh, these nagging questions that I had. And by the way, those nagging questions were nobody's fault. Mm. I mean, I I can't ask for a better upbringing than I had. My my mom and dad were great. I mean, not only did I have good answers to faith questions growing up, but more importantly, they, they taught me the, the power and the value of questions. And then um, I, would, I would submit that's not the fault of the, the religion department either. I just knew how to study. I knew how to study and, and uh, provide the answers to the questions that were asked of me, but it never it never quite filtered down to my heart from my head. Mm. And so I, I don't think I was Christian. And in, in, in the way that I understand Christianity now, I don't think I was Christian. <laughs> so I served for two years without a call and perhaps without being a Christian. I served <laughs> as a youth pastor for two years. But then I, I just I couldn't, I couldn't live with the contradictions anymore. And so Terry Toller encouraged me to go get a master's degree in theology. And so I did. I went and got a master's degree in theology. And in the process of recalibrating and recovering my own faith, I had this dawning awareness of a call. Mm. And so a little bit more than two years into my ministry, I was called to it. And um, 
I continue to be called to it. But it was certainly a growing and dawning awareness. And I, I don't have one of those experiences that would include a vision of any kind or a very specific kind of um, encounter with God that results in a, in a call to ministry. I don't have that at all, much to the chagrin of a professor or two that I know and love. I don't have that. I just have this growing, gnawing sense that I'm supposed to do and be something. And I got it about two, two and a half years in. <laughs> and how did that change your work and your ministry? Oh, dramatically. I mean, it, as you would expect, when you go about ministry as a Christian, as opposed to how you were going about it before, um, going about ministry as a Christian transformed ministry. I mean, as a person who now had, and, and what happened was I, I finally had come face to face with grace. Mm. Grace that I knew by then knew me and chose me anyway. Whereas before, I think I operated without any kind of an anchor or with, really without any kind of a voice, let's say. Um, from that moment on, from that moment to this one, grace is my voice. Mm. And grace is that anchor kind of message, the centerpiece around which every other message gets fit. Fitted, fit, fit. <laughs> and so it changed everything. I think it changed everything because I was different in every way mm. as a believer. Uh, and so it changed everything about mission and ministry for me. So was there a fundamental shift in the way that you understood faith? Oh, yeah. Before and after? Yeah. And, and here's the beautiful thing. All of that studying I had done before with really good professors and really good textbooks and, and all of that, it finally made sense. Mm. And so there was a framework in place, if only... Um, because it was occupying brain cells with, with nomenclature, right, with words and concepts. Well, now those all came alive for me. Mm. And it turns out I really am a Wesleyan. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in the same sort of way, Scripture came alive. I had memorized Scripture before, but now I knew it, mm. if that makes sense. And, and the way I've heard it, described for me this is also my testimony now in addition to getting some things that perhaps I hadn't gotten before I really had this deep sense that it was getting me mm. and uh, I was being drawn in to the heart of God and into participation with God in ways that I hadn't been before mm. so you started out as a youth pastor um, here at Oklahoma mm -hmm. City First Church of the Nazarene. Kind of tell me how you got from there to what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, so 16 years doing youth, and really I, I would have been happy staying there for the entirety of my career. But I had opportunity to add college to that, to that mix while also bringing in somebody else to help do some more of the, the youth ministry and really fell in love with the um, with college ministry because of the unique place in life a college student finds himself or herself. And then, then after that, we had another staff change and the man who had been serving as our executive pastor moved on. Now I'm on my third pastor, went from Terry Toller then to Dr. Steve Green. And the executive pastor moved on and took a church and Steve came to me and said, I, I would like for you to consider doing this executive pastor thing. And I said I would, but I didn't want to give up my age group ministry. So I, I needed to have some support help to be able to pull it all off. And and he agreed. And, and so we were able to add a few more people to the team. And then I was able to learn the larger church system. Um, so I was able to look into all things having to do with the physical plant, and I was able to look into 
the ways that we compensated ministers and insurance and this, that, and the other. Just learned all of it and did not enjoy it. <laughs> but I learned all of it. I learned to appreciate all of the nuts and the bolts and and found it to be a meaningful backdrop to what I was doing, but it, it, it certainly didn't light me up like sitting in front of a kid or studying and speaking and all of that. But I, I did it. It wasn't too long after that that Steve started to indicate that he would be moving on as well. Well, I still didn't see myself as a senior pastor. In fact, I applied for uh, a job at the city rescue mission and was going to help run the city rescue mission uh, when this is now during the transition between Steve's ministry and whoever would be next and so I was prepared for life outside of the local church and, and in fact had in mind that man this would be a neat thing I could take some of what I learned at the local church and implement some of that at the city rescue mission and kind of make a parish out of it and so I, that's what I kind of was leaning toward doing. When Oklahoma City First Church um, asked me to consider being their pastor. And um, I wasn't sure about that, nor was my wife. <laughs> I wasn't sure about any of that. But we continued to think about it and pray about it and consider it. And... and um, Actually, we're, we're out of town, out of state, when we finally agreed to let the church vote on us. And they voted, and we accepted, and that was 2007. And, and I had always been the guy who said, no, I'll never do that. In fact, I was, I was dumb enough to use language like, well, that's the dark side. The senior pastor part's the dark side. What do you think you meant by that? Um, looking back and, and hearing a younger version of myself say that, I know I didn't have any idea what I was talking about. I think, I think cynically what I meant was, yeah, youth pastors are, are on the ground. We are the grassroots of mission and ministry, and that is true. There is no doubt about it. But... It is entirely possible to schedule myself and organize myself away from grassroots mission and ministry, but I would die soon thereafter. So my, my way of going about my life as a senior pastor takes full advantage of all the things that I learned while a youth pastor. Mm. And so I now know that this isn't the dark side. This is the same side. I'm still just as hands-on as I was before. If anything, I'm hands-on with a broader group of people. There's much more variety and diversity in the people that I deal with day in and day out than there was before. So whatever I meant, I was wrong. <laughs> when I said that about the dark side, whatever I meant, I was wrong when I said it. Mm. And I'm sorry I said it. Because <laughs> um, it's certainly not. I, I enjoy it. I still miss eating with high school kids in the cafeteria. I still miss a lot of that. I still miss dealing with kids when they're at that place in life when they really can make decisions that impact trajectory. But I don't have to be far away from that. I'm still doing some things. I'm still speaking to some high school kids. Mm. Um, and I still get to speak to college students. And I'm insisting as I speak to older than that, I'm insisting that we all should still maybe not grip life so tightly that we can't look at it through the lenses of the younger believer. Mm. Maybe maybe it's even more important when we have mortgages and debt and all of that. Maybe it's more important that we are allowing God to shape the way we see God and ourselves and mission. Mm. If you were giving advice to a young clergy person who's becoming a senior pastor, what lessons might you point to in your time as a senior pastor that you've learned and try to pass on to them? Yeah, so as we record this, 
it's, it's late October, and we're in the run-up to an election. Uh, and where we are, where Oklahoma City first is on the national map, we're in the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. And so religion and politics are often mistaken for one another. So political debates end up being experienced as, or, or let's say it like this, when, when you argue with somebody and it's over politics, pretty soon you get the impression that you're arguing over faith. And people feel deeply and passionately about these issues. And if you're doing what you're doing correctly, then you have people on opposite sides of these issues sitting on the same pew. And I would say to a young pastor, um, try to be broad. I mean, certainly try to be deep. But try to be broad. Try to make sure that your congregation has the breadth of the culture in it as best you can. In other words, take seriously the opportunity that you have, Pastor, to try to bring about a very unique kind of peace, which is not the absence of conflict. It's enemy love. It is a patient, empathetic, listening posture that defines success not as us all being on the same pages, but defines success as us sitting together when we're not on the same pages and singing together and lunching together and, and serving together when we're not on the same pages. So I would say to a, a young pastor, make sure that you've defined success well. And then once you've defined success well, stay long enough to achieve it. Because the kind of peace that we're talking about, uh, shalom, as it would be described in the Old Testament, and peace, as we would read it in the New, it takes a long time. And it's messy and at times bloody. But I think the gospel is most clearly evident when it's practiced between enemies as opposed to practiced between friends. So that's what I would say. I guess I could have said that a lot more briefly if I'd have said, make sure that whatever it is that you do never strays from the person of, of Christ. So high, highly Christological, and yet that has to work out in the way that we do ecclesiology and even eschatology, and the way that we talk about how God will bring all things to completion. Um, it's about peace, and it's about enemy love, and it's about Christian community and wolves and lambs. So I know that Revelation is your favorite book yeah. of the Bible, and I'm just curious about what has drawn you there and, and what you like about it and what has moved you about those passages. So the book of Revelation, I think, is Scripture's clearest enunciation of the impact of the resurrection. And beyond that, it is Scripture's clearest enunciation of who we are to be, who we can be, as people who benefit from the resurrection, as people who are equipped and empowered by the resurrection, as people who are, in fact, meant to be, at least in, in to some extent, the means whereby the resurrection is implemented. Mm. Now, it, it's, it's more than us. But it is us. In other words, so eschatology is what we're talking about. But eschatology is never far from ecclesiology. And that's, whether, and that's good eschatology and bad eschatology. So Because good eschatology gives you good ecclesiology, and bad eschatology left behind hmm. gives you really bad ecclesiology. Right. So... If your eschatological vision is that God is going to take all the good people away from here and then destroy the earth, 
that's how your church is going to function ultimately. But if you, in fact, believe Scripture, <laughs> and especially the Scriptures that go something like this, now God is making God's home among people, and God is making all things new. You see in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 this beautifully crafted and this beautifully painted vision of what will be, of what is and of what will be. And believing that to be true, believing that to be the most reliable eschatological vision, not that we would all go somewhere else, but that God would finish what God started here, tells me something about how I'm supposed to go about pastoring and serving and leading a church that is supposed to be, in and of itself, an outbreaking of this new reality, of this new kind of humanity known as the people of God, the church. So I think what you have in the book of Revelation is this largely neglected, although it's I think that's turning around, this largely neglected resource for churches um, and how to go about being the church. Now, not if, like we've said, not if you feel like God is just going to destroy everything and so he's preparing somewhere else for us to live with God. And not if you find numerical evidence for a particular date at which point God will come back. It's not going to work at that point. Those are terrible ways to read scripture. And not if you somehow are reading um, the book of Revelation and and you see Vladimir Putin or you see other political entities or other world leaders. That's not what we're talking about. Um, We're talking about a, a battle that continues to rage in some sense, for sure. But a battle whose outcome has been decided. Mm. And we, as the church, live to announce and embody that outcome, not to live in fear of the battle as if somehow the outcome has not been decided. The outcome's been decided. And that, that happens in the opening verses. I mean, you get that announcement in chapter 1, the opening verses, it's the resurrected Jesus who comes and says to John, write a letter to these churches who seem to have forgotten, many of whom have seemed to have forgotten, that we've won. Hmm. And so understood against that particular backdrop, there's so much there for us who are in church, who are in churches. There's so much for us as, as believers. But I want to be careful that we continue to say for us who are in churches. It's not just for the individual believer who's given up on the church. It's for churches who see the the power and the possibility of of continuing to gather to be the people of God, albeit imperfectly, but to continue to gather knowing that God is doing something in and through us, sometimes despite us, but still choosing to work in and through us to put some skin and flesh on the hope of the gospel. So, yeah, I love the book. I've made our congregation endure two long sermon series through the book of Revelation, and I'm going to wait at least several weeks before we do it again. (laughs) (laughs) What do you enjoy most about what you do now? Hmm. Well, I, I love preaching. I think I'm most at home when, when finally we've sung the scripture song and the scripture's been read and then the preaching moment arrives. I think I'm most at home in those moments. Mm. Um, But I think I love when, when I think what I love the most is when a kingdom moment happens. and, And by that, I mean what we just talked about. When folks who wouldn't be together or, or perhaps wouldn't be friends in any other arena are friends here and we see a wolf and a lamb kingdom come to fruition when there is collaboration amongst unlikely partners um, when there is a mended fence because of the gospel that could not have been mended any other way mm. um, that's I think that's what 
keeps wind in my sails. I like that. Um, you know, currently we are, again, our, our city's just politicized. Um, and not too long ago, a Muslim man, uh, in fact, a couple of, of Muslim men, one a clergy person, was just viciously and publicly attacked. And to watch members of the Christian community surround these attacked Muslim believers and makes my heart beat, makes my heart pound. Mm. And so I like I like getting up and coming to work here every day. I I don't take for granted that this is where I get to come and serve. And I really, really find the, the preaching moment meaningful, but in terms of when my heart is most fully engaged, it's it's when the kingdom bubbles to the surface like that. Mm. When I can see it either here or around here or see it reflected in, in what you and Aaron do or in what some of our other staff members go out and do. I love that. I love that. Whether I'm directly involved or not, I, I feel that love whether I'm involved directly or not. How would you describe your preaching style? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I've never been asked that. <laughs> I am conversational, I believe. I hope I am culturally aware. Um, but I am Christological to, the, to a fault. No, no, there's no fault in that. I'm Christological. And by that I mean, no matter the passage I might be using, I'm never preaching that passage without my Christological lenses on. So if Christ is the image of the invisible God, as Paul says, and I would agree with that. Um, it's good that I agree with Paul in it. Um, then, then Christ becomes the lens through which we read all of Scripture. We we can then read with this sense that that all things are moving toward the cross and the resurrection, and then all things are moving from the cross and the resurrection. Now, that's not to say that as we read the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and any of the, the prophetic voices, that's not to say that those passages don't have... That's not to say that all of those prophecies are necessarily drawing a direct line between the prophecy itself and Christ. I don't believe that. Uh, I believe that all of those passages need to be excavated um, so that we can understand the context within which those words were spoken and, and appreciate what it is that God was trying to say in those moments. But I don't think we probably should always be aware that all things are still headed toward uh, the cross and the resurrection, um, even if the prophecies themselves don't directly have in mind this Jesus born of Mary. There is still a general flow toward the cross and the resurrection and then from the cross and the resurrection to eternity. So that's what I mean by that. Does that make more sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How would you describe my preaching style? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think that's really accurate. Very conversational, very relevant. You bring in things that are happening in the culture and the climate. You're able to kind of bring a wide variety of people together and kind of call us out on the ways that we are divided, which I like. We're, we're Christian calendar sensitive. Mm -hmm. So we use the revised common lectionary, sometimes to my chagrin, but I'm committed to it. But what that means is you, you not only need to be faithful to the theology of a particular text, but I think there's also a need to be faithful to the ethos within each text um, and the ethos of a season. So 
I hope that our church understands that my preaching is part of the way, it's, it's one of the ways in which we keep sacred time, if that makes some sense. Yeah. So hopefully folks understand that I'm preaching the, the texts and the theology of an epiphany season, but also this deep sense of uh, surprise and joy in epiphany. And when we get all the way around to Lent, I'm preaching the texts and and the uh, the theology of the Lenten season, while also trying to capture this voice that is reflective and and willing to look in the mirror, even if I don't like what I see. Mm-hmm. And this particular emotion that is communicated during Lent that moves me toward confession and repentance and the acknowledgement that I'm not something or not something yet at least mm. so I, I hope I hope that the the congregation whether it be the the folks listening in the pews or the folks listening online um, recognize that well a couple of things that I'm walking with that I'm a fellow struggler, journeyer, and traveler, and walking with them in the ups and the downs of my own life and the ups and the downs that we experience in the Christian calendar. But that's the other thing that that I think Scripture and, and the lectionary and the Christian calendar reflects this understanding of the humanity of congregations that there are in fact ups and downs and there are times when we need to reflect and and take sober assessment of who we are and who we are who we aren't mm. sober assessment how far short we fall of this plumb line that we understand to be Jesus and those aren't necessarily great days in terms of enjoyment perhaps they are great days in terms of truth and, and honesty I feel like preaching's making a comeback. I think there was a time when different ways of going about church and church life, we were slowly but surely kind of negotiating away the boundaries of what I would call the preaching moment. And some of those things are great, and we should continue to figure out ways to facilitate discussion and incorporate uh, multi-sensory elements into the preaching moment, and I don't differ with that at all. Um, but I feel like proclamation perhaps is making a comeback and I'm glad, I'm glad for that. And I, I take that, I'm humbled by that call and that charge and, and I'm challenged by it both as a pastor and preacher, but also as a believer, I'm, I'm confronted by it at times. And, and so I find that more and more meaningful the long, longer I'm in it, I I don't find the preaching thing to be burdensome. I'm, I'm honored to do it week in and week out. and honored to put in the, the time and the effort week in and week out. I know you have kind of gathered a group of young clergy who preach. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that, how it got started, what, it, what it's doing. Yeah. Um, it's called Catchy Lecti, and perhaps the name needs... An upgrade, but maybe not. But it's a group of folks who gather to think through the the different seasons of the Christian calendar, and in particular, how we will preach through the different seasons of the Christian calendar. We we kind of gather up our creativity. Um, we talk through themes that we see in each season, and then we try to. Uh, get to the point where our creative discussions can provide us with a sermon series title and then a look. And then we continue to talk. Uh, J.R. Foresteros down at Catalyst Rowlett is genius and super fun to work with. And J.R. is a planner. And he's a planner in a way that I'm not. And I, I'm in awe of his ability to write a sermon that he's going to preach four weeks from now. I can't do that. I'm not focused enough to do that. But J.R. will will do that, and he'll gather a few of our number, and they will talk every week about the sermon that's coming up in a month. And, and I will gather up another group of our folks, and we will talk every week about the sermon that's coming up on Sunday. 
Um, and we will talk about everything from biblical study sorts of questions and answers, and we'll talk about textual things, but we'll also talk about societal things and pop cultural things that, that perhaps should make it into our, our sermons and, and questions that should be asked in the midst of a sermon. And, and we do that week of because there are some folks like me who sit with it and sit with it and sit with it till the to the very last moment, recognizing that as as much as I like to be organized and I like to have things and have all my ducks in a row, there are times when things change late because of maybe late breaking news or something like that, and I want to be flexible enough to be able to do that. And and again, Jr. is certainly smart enough to do that as well. But uh, I'm I'm more likely to orient week by week, and he and he helps us to orient about a month out. Mm. So it's great, and it's uh, open invitation. Uh, there's a Facebook group. There's uh, a web page, catchylecty.com, where past sermon series. We've been doing it long enough now that we're, we're cycling back through some of these same passages that we've worked on before, mm-hmm. and we can go back and look and see what we did in 2011 and 2014 in preparation for Epiphany 2017. So uh, that's helpful to us. And again, we, we meet kind of a Google Hangout sort of thing. Uh, we communicate through Google Hangout, but also through this Facebook page and certainly lots of emails and phone calls and are always happy when when we can add to our number we try to meet face to face at least once a year which is tough because i feel like right now we're spread out over at least three different states uh, maybe four four now but we do try to meet up face to face as best we can and then map out as far in advance as we can the different themes and all of that if not if not sermon titles, at least the text and the themes and stuff like that. So it's a lot of fun. I find it very meaningful. The conversations are always uh, generative and, and, and really fun. So, yeah, y'all come. I love it. Um, kind of tell me about your process of sermon preparation. The Catchy Lecty group creates yeah. kind of the sh- overarching structure and theme. Yeah. Where do you go from there? Week to week. So typically, when we arrive at a, a theme, it's because we have landed on a particular set of passages. So coming up in Advent, we'll be using the Old Testament passages, which are from Isaiah, my just my favorite Advent passages. So swords beaten into plowshares, and then wolves and lambs, and Weak knees made strong. Um, and so what happens is, for me, with the, the passage, my, my church has given me this gift for nine years now since I've been their pastor. And, and I take Mondays off, but I take Tuesdays away. And so every Tuesday is a day for me to um, sit and, and I don't come in. I, I do this somewhere else, and it's been everywhere from a retreat center to to my home, just to different places, wherever wherever I can be quiet and wherever I can best control my environment. Um, but I spread all my resources out around me and I am praying as much as I am reading and soaking and immersing. You know, I've been aware of the past, like I'm already aware. I know the passages I'm going to be working on through through Advent and Christmas season, and I'm pretty well aware of what we're going to do, uh, Epiphany. So I know the passages, and so by the time I get to uh, the week of, it's already a friend with whom I'm pretty well familiar, this mm-hmm. passage. But then, especially if it's a, pa- a passage that I've preached from before, um, then what I'm doing is I'm, I'm diving as deep as I can, and I construct a a huge document as best I can. Everything from just typing and typing to copying and pasting to dictating to the computer and all of that from a variety of different sources, textual sources, somebody else's sermon, um, all kinds of theological sources, commentaries and the like, art and literature, just to try to just put get everything out. A lot of times what I'm trying to do is 
is get a particular sermon out of my head, but I can't get it out of my head unless I write it down at some point. So I'm just compiling this super big document, and that's really what a Tuesday is. So I am gathering and digging and gathering and digging, and, and finally what I come out with at the end of a Tuesday is something that nobody wants to hear. It's, it's long, and a lot of it's wrong, but it's just all gathered up there in one giant document, and then I will, if there's time on that same Tuesday, I'll start to pare it down. Typically, I'm doing that late at night. I'm paring it down a little bit at a time until finally on Friday and even sometimes on Saturday hits. What I'm working with now is a very short document. In fact, it's I don't use a manuscript. I use kind of a glorified outline. But by then, I've so immersed myself in, in the subject matter and the text itself, I don't need a manuscript. But I do need this, this outline. It kind of keeps me tethered just enough. <laughs> So I have some discipline. Um, but then by the time in, in the weekend, I'm always looking for that, that way to connect the sermon to something that everyone will have seen to make sure, not so much that they can make application, but so they can make connections. Like this is the way the world is. This is, this is who God is in the world. This is where we can spot God in the world. This is where we can spot brokenness in the world. And this is where God calls us. Uh, so I'm, I'm always looking for a way to say, yeah, uh, to, looking for a way to point and say, look over there, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, look over there, this is, this is what God is talking to us about. So I'm always looking for something like that. And sometimes it comes in the form of a video clip from a movie or, or it comes from an ad or it comes from an, a news story or an anecdote of some kind, maybe one of my own stories. And again, I have learned to allow for late breaking changes. And in fact, I've, I have, I have a few folks who, who help us um, with our audiovisual things and, and they are patient with me. And so they're okay too. They seem to be, if they're not, they're not telling me, but they seem to be okay with late breaking changes, even if they are Sunday morning changes, which happens, I would say one out of four Sundays, at least wow. something changes dramatically. Well, sometimes news breaks mm. and sometimes news breaks on a Sunday morning. Can and you even, think of an example? Yeah, there is a terrorist attack. Um, not too long ago that, that broke. And while I didn't break the news, let's say, to, to our congregation, I did want them to be armed with the truth of the sermon articulated a particular way so that when they did hear about this particular terrorist attack, they would have already heard some of the words that they were going to hear in the attack itself as the attack was reported. Hmm. And I wanted them to have, again, lenses uh, through which to monitor and measure what it is that was happening in the world that was obviously a brokenness bubbling to the surface. But it was also another moment that is just ripe with kingdom possibilities dependent on how the church chose to and how the people of the church chose to respond to it. Mm. Like how do we respond to gun violence? How do we respond to uh, policemen who are killed? How do we respond when when black folks are killed, I mean, how, how do we respond? I mean, it all matters. And so I want to be able to give our folks this deep sense that, oh, wow, this is what God is trying to say in and through these passages. And so there are times when, when I will, there are times when I'll go ahead and talk about what happened, like the shooting in Dallas, uh, the shooting of the policeman in Dallas. Or if you remember a while back, there was a uh, occasion to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and how supportive I am of that of that particular movement. Well, that was born out in the in the that was a story that played out over the the news cycles that particular week. And I and I just we aren't just working on behavior around here. We're working on a kingdom vision that allows kingdom behavior to bubble to the surface. Um, so I feel like that that stuff making making those connections to what happens out there and the conversations that people are going to have inevitably about an election cycle, right? I want to make sure that they that we enter into those conversations at least having had the opportunity 
uh, to think through the ramifications of what it means to be amongst the baptized and the called to this particular kingdom mission. Hmm. Kind of changing gears a little bit. Yeah. What would you say is the most difficult part about your position being a senior pastor? There are a lot of churches in Oklahoma City, and the pain is not that I have all of these others, other competitors. The pain is that when there are this many churches and when the gospel is so well packaged around here like it is, we turn congregants into consumers all over again. And the most painful part of ministry for me the most painful parts happen when congregants behave as consumers and covenants are lost. Hmm. You know, we I wish membership I wish membership meant more than it did. And that's one of the things that I I hope one of the contributions I make to the denomination, I hope at some point this is a contribution I can make. Advocating that membership should mean something more than it does. It mm. seems like it's a legal designation now, mm. but I, I wish we could recover what we've had in our history before, this concept that membership is in and of itself, it has salvific potential. That by virtue of belonging, that there could be this expectation that by virtue of belonging, I can be moved toward Christ-likeness. Mm. And I don't think that our legal designation of membership necessarily communicates that at this point. So when, when Christians become consumers, they become consumers at the cost of covenant. I didn't mean for that to alliterate, it just did. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. So consumerism and, and covenant make use of opposing muscle groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is painful. You know, I've been here now 26 years Wow. in various capacities. And that's long enough to see multiple generations. And still, before I say this, let me say, I think sometimes folks need to change churches. Mm. Um, there's been hurt or just a wandering and people aren't as tight or as close as they used to be and and while I don't like it and I and I will always believe that something other than fracture is possible folks sometimes maybe without even being able to articulate it need to change and I've seen it happen I've <laughs> I've seen people flourish after leaving and I've seen churches flourish after some people leave so I, I don't want to say, I don't want to be heard as being legalistic about this. So I, because I do think those things can happen. I think they're rare and maybe they're, again, the exceptions that prove the rule, but I do think I've seen it. That said, I think that when you stay together, I think when the pastor understands her connection to a a church in covenantal ways or when she understands her connection to a church in perhaps matrimonial sorts of ways such that it would include statements that sound like vows i think part of what gets communicated when vows are used in a marriage ceremony i think part of what's communicated is There is something to be learned about us as an entity. There's something to be learned about this relationship that won't be learned any other way than by moving through these days marked by words like worse, poorer, and sickness. And I think that's true, and not just of marriages, but I think that's true of a pastor's relationship with his or her congregation. Mm -hmm. But when it breaks down... And it doesn't work, and it doesn't work after 20-some-odd years. That's kind of hurt to keep you up at night. Um, because there's, there's what could I have done, what did I miss, all of that, that I think is probably 
also present when a when a marriage covenant fails. Mm. So that's the hardest part, and and yet I don't think I would do it any other way. I I can't stand away from <clears throat> our congregation and just preach at it. I must preach amongst our congregation, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and live in and with this community. And I don't, there's more good than there is bad, but when it's bad, it's painful. Mm. Way more good than there is bad. Was it, what is it that's kept you here for 26 years? <laughs> um, a, a few things, and some of them, I'm going to go from the pragmatic to the more meaningful, okay. right? I don't want to move. I want my kids to grow up in one place as best I can or as, or as God allows. My kids to grow up in one place, in one church, and develop multi-generational connections as they have here. Lots of grandparents around here, lots of siblings around here. So I want that. Um, I am not sure how many other places would take us <laughs> as pastor at this point. Um, much, much, much more importantly, I've always been interested in what we could do if given more time. Mm. Always. Always been interested in what we could be with another year's worth of covenant, with another year's worth of depth in our relationship. And so far, now that's not to say that that this is an eternal situation here. I mean, again, I, I should also say that while there have been opportunities and there have been conversations, I should also say that I think God's been clear that, yeah, we're going to explore what depth looks like here. We're going to explore what a long tenure is going to look like here. And I would like to believe that if, if God were to change, that I would be obedient enough to listen and go do what God wanted me to do. I do believe that I would be obedient to that. But at this point, Um, 26 years in, and I'm no less excited to come to church than I was at any point earlier in this 26 years. I mean, the things that we get to do now in year 26, I guess it'd be year 27. I guess the the things that we get to do now in year 27, I don't know that we could have done in year 24. Hmm. So if that's the case, if we can, if we can do if we can have these open conversations about hospitality, if we can have these conversations about the interrelatedness of science and faith in year 27, what might we be able to do in year 28 or 29 and 30? And I'm just of the opinion that there's a cumulative effect of a pastor's tenure and a cumulative effect of a church's presence in a neighborhood. Um, and I don't want to move around for this, many of the same reasons that I don't want my church to move around. Hmm. I don't want my church to move around every three and a half years to a different neighborhood. And I, just, I want to see what, it's, what roots, what, what can God do with roots that grow deeper and thicker? Um, so those are the better reasons beyond the first two <laughs> to stay somewhere for a long time. I hope, and I feel like folks are staying longer hmm. places. Yeah. Um, and I feel like folks in the the generation that you're a part of see the value in long-term connections and long-term connections that allow for us to make inroads into a neighborhood and a community. And by that, I don't mean the church community inside the walls. I mean the community outside the walls. Mm. Things that you can't do if you're only somewhere every two years. If you're only somewhere for two years before you go somewhere else, you just can't do it. Well, that kind of leads me into my last question, which is, what is it that inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here? I love the Church of the Nazarene 
I love its I love its Wesleyan theology. You know, once once my education did what it was supposed to do and I could discern the difference between theologies, I found myself serving in the church with the theology that I would have chosen. Hmm. Uh, which is good. It's a good feeling. That doesn't mean that I don't have moments of utter frustration. But my love for the church means that I will work on those things while around the tables. And that I have a large supply of patience to sit with and work with and walk alongside the denomination. There have been times when I've wondered, I've kind of wondered what it might be like to be outside of the denomination and, and still pastor and preach, what what might that be like? But can you imagine what Thanksgiving at mom and dad's house would be like if I did something like that? Um, so I've I've wondered, um, what would it be like to to step outside of of the church? But it's never I've never wondered that um, or followed that uh, inkling. To the point of it ever being a real threat um, because I want to be identified with the church. Now I want the church to move forward and to look more and more and more like Jesus. I don't want us to be static. I, I don't want us to, to get stuck. And at times I feel like we get stuck. Mm. I especially feel like when the church... Um, again, mistakes, politics for theology, I think you're pretty soon going to get stuck. If for no other reason, I mean, gridlock happens in a church just like it does in Washington, D.C. Mm. So I think the, the, close, the, the closer the theology of the church gets identified with a partisan political position or agenda, the more likely we are to be stuck because it will be divisive and it'll be tug of war. But if we can think through some of this and, and see the value in, in some sense of, of kind of being our own political entity as the kingdom, not beholden to any of the other existing uh, ideologies, then we have a chance to move uniquely um, and move forward. And that hope that we can do that, especially given who we are in terms of our theological DNA, mm. um, I have hope that voices will emerge and, and help us to do that and recover this with great humility, recover this understanding of the unique nature of the church in culture and the unique nature of the church of the Nazarene within church culture. Hmm. Uh, because I do believe it's unique and equipped to be collaborative with other iterations of Christianity within the church culture and equipped to be collaborative with other faith systems outside of Christianity and equipped to collaborate with other entities not at all connected with any kind of faith community. I mean, that's, again, that's part of who we are. We're the folks that work with people yeah. to accomplish uh, societal change because we believe that those, these are the ways that we implement the ramifications of the resurrection. Mm. And since... I'm convinced that that's who we are and what we believe when we believe what we're supposed to believe. I'll stick around and help as long as it takes and inspire as many as I can to do the same. If someone had a question for you about something you've talked about or preaching or revelation, where could they get a hold of you? Yeah. Um, Email is a good one. John, J-O-N, at OKCFirst.com. Dot com or Facebook. I'm, I feel like I'm doing more and more communication via 
Facebook and Twitter, kind of private messaging back and forth. And I'm John J-O-N Middendorf. There's another John Middendorf out there who has an H in his name, who is a is a champion rock climber, and I am not him. Gotcha. So Facebook, Twitter, email, and lunch. <laughs>